you guys, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's good to see you all this morning. So we are into now our, um, the saints time of year. We, the four weeks before Advent at Redemption Church, we do four weeks on, um, the saints who have gone before us and just to learn from their lives and to have their, their examples spur us on to faithfulness. And today we're going to learn from the story of a man named William Wilberforce. Who's heard of Wilberforce before? Okay, good. This will be easy because some people love him already. That's fantastic. Um, he was one of the guiding lights of the abolitionist movement in the UK. Um, Wilberforce was born in um, 1759. So the mid 1700s in Hull, England. He was always a little guy when he was fully grown. He was only five foot two and never weighed more than 135 pounds. Um, yeah, jealousy. Um, but he was really he's really small. But he had this big booming voice and a, a great singing voice and speaking voice, both of which were very prized personal assets in those days. His family was quite wealthy, had every advantage growing up, but at age nine, his father died, and his mother got really sick, and he was sent off to London to live with an aunt and uncle who were part of this crazy religious sect known as the Methodists. <laughs> they were a group of Anglicans who were very serious about their faith. They were called um, enthusiasts. That's what they called the religious people who were just a little bit too into it. And he, Wilberforce, adopted some of this seriousness. He was um, exposed to it through, the, through his aunt and uncle and also to some of the great kind of uh, shining stars of theology of that time, people like George Whitfield, John Wesley, and John Newton. They were all part of the same circles. And um, John Newton, you remember, he was the ex-slave ship captain who turned evangelist abolitionist, and he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, that song. And so from age 11 to 13, um, Newton was one of Wilberforce's primary teachers. And the two were very close. He had a big impact on him. And, and Wilberforce was this sensitive, really intelligent, well-spoken young man who was having a, a genuine spiritual awakening from age 11 to 13 until his mother found out. Um, that her William was in the clutches of these enthusiasts, these Methodists. And, um, you know, in those days, the upper classes, religion was kind of for the poor, just to keep them in line and keep them a little bit afraid, but thinking they might go to heaven when they die, that kind of stuff. And um, the higher classes, they didn't really need all this religious fervor. And they did not like enthusiasts. In fact, there's this really funny um, tombstone in a, in a graveyard in London somewhere. And it's, it's a preacher, a, a uh, Anglican priest who wanted to make sure what side he was on and so his tombstone actually said he faithfully preached the gospel for 40 years without enthusiasm. That's what it says. <laughs> they were serious about this distinction. So they were worried about William becoming enthusiastic so mother and grandfather came to get him and spent the next few years kind of deprogramming him from Methodism. And um, then at age 17, he went off to college at Cambridge, 
was very popular, made tons of friends, was admired. Um, his speeches, his singing, you know, gave him notoriety. It was actually kind of a big deal if you could sing back then. If you think about it, there was no music piped into places, no jukeboxes or anything. Um, when you got together, that's one of the things people would do is sing. And he was a great singer and made him popular. And he made friends really easy, including a friendship with a man named William Pitt, the younger. Um, he was the son of a, a political giant, and he would take him to Parliament to see his dad debating things. This is like 1776, so they're debating the U.S. colonies in the middle of that whole deal. And the two young men were watching this, and they just, they got hooked on it. In those days, to do well in politics, you had to do two things. You had to speak really well and debate. And he, Wilberforce, he, he excelled at both. And so he decided he wanted to do politics. And at the age of 20, he ran for parliament, which in those days, running for parliament meant you found somebody with enough money to buy your seat. That's just how it worked. And um, you openly bribed the electors, which he did, and was elected to parliament within two weeks of his 20th birthday. And Pitt, his buddy, was elected at the same time, too. And these two friends just rose really quickly. They had all this talent, all this energy. People loved it. Pitt was the leader, and Wilberforce was the voice. And Pitt was kind of the, did the politics, and Wilberforce did the speech making. And within a year, these two guys had risen to the head of their party, they were the leaders of their own party. And um, then by age 24, about four years later, William Pitt was elected prime minister of Great Britain. This is unprecedented. Nobody that young had ever been elected. And um, Wilberforce, in the same election, maneuvered himself to get the seat in parliament from Yorkshire, which was a really prominent seat. So Pitt and, and Wilberforce became... Uh, major players in the national scene in their early 20s and um, literally kind of running, running the country at age 24. It's quite something. And they were loving it. But about that time, Wilberforce took a little vacation to the French Riviera, like you do. Um, and he took this friend named Isaac Milner, who is a really interesting char character. Um, Milner was like a, the super genius of the UK at the time. He was this hulking character. He's like six foot eight, almost 300 pounds, um, and just a towering frame, towering intellect, and considered the smartest man in England. In fact, he was elected to the Royal Society, like their upper crust of academia, as an undergrad student. They're like, this guy has game. He, just, he was admitted right then. Held the chair of mathematics at Cambridge, same chair as Isaac Newton and um, Stephen Hawking. Plus, he was like hilariously funny, famously so. And um, Milner hung with the, these guys, with Wilber, um, Wilberforce and Pitt, and he went on this trip with Wilberforce, and which I, I just like had to be slightly funny to see six eight three hundred five two one thirty five like, and they rode around in a chase carriage, those really small ones, which had to be like this the whole time. I'm thinking. Um, and then, so you have this big booming guy, and then this little tiny dude with a big booming voice, can't stop singing all the time on a 1,200-mile road trip, having this really long, days-long, extraordinary conversation about religion. And Milner, turns out, was a Methodist. Duh-duh-duh, right? <laughs> They're back. The smartest man in England was a devout Christian, and he just, just kind of floored 
Wilberforce, he's like, you've got to be kidding me. How does that work? And then they were off to the races, talking, talking. And by the end of the trip, his own faith had been rekindled, um, which really kind of couldn't come at a more inconvenient time. He was the toast of London, the most eligible bachelor in town, um, you know, and a great singer to boot, um, wealthy, powerful, and now a committed Christian, an enthusiast, a Methodist. And um, most people at that, that time, it kind of doesn't make sense to us now, but they, they really thought politics and religion were irreconcilable. And so when this happened, he just assumed, I'm going to have to quit politics and go into religion. And Pitt frantically tried to talk him out of it. And um, it took actually John Newton visiting him and saying, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to leave Parliament? You can do more good in Parliament than you could ever do in one of these stodgy old Church of England pulpits. And so he decided to stick it out. Um, and it was about that time that the abolitionist, abolitionists sorry, in the UK began to realize something happened to Wilberforce. He's like, some, there's a conversion thing that just happened. And they started to lobby him. And they would set up these chance meetings with him and be like, hey, would you like to sing a song for us? And um, kind of cozying up to him, they had him all these dinners where he could show off. And they would use all those chances to teach him about the abolitionist movement and educate him about the slave trade. And when we think of, you know, if you think of 1700s, like 1770s in America, you think of the Revolutionary War. And you kind of, I mean, all the TV and stuff had taught us to see like powdered wigs and stodgy manners and uptight people drinking tea. And in fact, in, at least in London, this was a very body vulgar pagan cultural moment in England with a huge gap between rich and poor. Um, poor meant mostly destitute and the rich could care less. And the church was kind of impotent to speak into this. If you went to the Church of England, you'd hear much more about enlightenment philosophy than the story of God. And Christians were not charitable. They hoarded their power. They thought wealth equaled God's blessing and poverty meant God's judgment. And their God was obviously on the side of the rich because um, the rich had all the good stuff. And the church said nothing about injustice or vulgar society. Um, just to illustrate, 1770s London, get this, 25% of the females living in London in the 1770s were prostitutes. A quarter. The average age was 16 surprising to me is that it was like this. It's a rough place to live, and God was not a major factor. It was decadent. And um, the leading social figure of the day, like the, the, you know, the bachelor everybody was in love with was the Prince of Wales. Some things never change. And um, he was famous for two things. His, his gambling debts um, were so bad that Parliament had to keep authorizing new payments. It was like over, well over a million pounds. And then he had 7,000 different, um, shall we say, guest sleepovers at the palace in which he would cut a lock of hair from each girl, put it in an envelope with her name on it, and then kept them all on file and bragged about this to people, and they thought it was funny. Yeah, it's kind of a weird time. Um, one of their most popular forms of entertainment was called bull baiting. Anybody ever heard of bull baiting? It's bizarre. 
Um, they would tie a bull to a stake with about 30 feet of chain, blow pepper in its face to enrage it, and then set dogs loose to attack it and just watch what happened. And the dogs were trained to lock on its jaw or its snout with their, with their things, and then they would wait for the bull to fly them like 35 feet in the air and come down, you know, and it was, just, it was blood sport, and people loved it. In fact, they bred special dogs called bulldogs. That's where they come from. They have the little tiny bodies and that big head and jaw. It was the lock on. Yeah, that's where we get them. So that's the kind of culture that we're talking about. Getting these guys to care about slavery was not happening. But Wilberforce decided to try. He wrote this famous line in his journal. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Not manners as in like etiquette, but it, it meant culture, the kind of entertainment they were at. He wanted to end the slave trade and reform the culture. That's what he wanted. And he and his buddies, their tactics were kind of ingenious and often worked. They had a real impact on things like prostitution, animal cruelty, child labor, prison reform, alcoholism. They were transforming culture. And it was sort of the first time somebody, for religious reasons, had addressed this through politics. And, and this, by the way, really sort of set the, um, set the, the, I don't know, the terms for the church's work on things like social justice for centuries. I mean, we're still kind of living in, in the wake of it. Um, but the slave trade, like that, was, that was another story. Um, the British slave trade really was even more brutal than the U.S. If for no other reason then, they never saw it. Um, that they never knew what was happening because it happened for them in the British West Indies, not at home. Plus, this, the, the slave trade was the secret to their wealth, and they were very wealthy, these plantations growing sugar and fruit and cocoa and spices. The, the merchants got rich off these things. And Wilberforce threw himself into the abolitionist movement um, and became their guy in Parliament, pushing legislation with his buddy William Pitt. And they just made like a big run at it. They thought this is going to happen. And it got voted down. And so they're like, okay, we'll just try harder. They came back the next year, tried again, and failed again. And, it, and over time, it sort of became this running joke that the, these two enthusiasts, these Methodist parliamentarians, are going to trot out there in slavery thing, and it's going to fail. And um, Finally, they decided to give up on the politics and start to just raise public awareness. And that was Wilberforce's jam. He like gave speeches. They wrote books and pamphlets. Um, and Wilberforce started to, to focus in on something called the Middle Passage. You remember learning about this in history class? Um, it's part of the, the triangle trade thing. They'd run ammunition and guns and glass and pots and copper and cloth and all that stuff from the UK to Africa, trade it for slaves whom Africans had had stole, you know, kidnapped slaves from their own, own people, then they would ship those guys to the West Indies and um, to work on plantations. That was the Middle Passage, that, that trip from Africa to the plantations. Then they would pick up, you know, the fruits of their labor, the cash crops, the raw materials, and take them back to the UK, stuff like sugar, tobacco, rum, coffee, and cotton, either there or the New World. And the Middle Passage was this, this brutal centerpiece and I can't even begin to adequately describe what it was like, the horrors of it. Human beings, like moms and dads and children, just kidnapped from their families, crammed into these 
disease-ridden ships. Below deck, a deck that was at best five feet tall, chained in pairs, crammed into the hold, three to 400 people shoulder to shoulder with no ventilation, no buckets even for human waste. Of the 10 to 12 million African slaves who made the Middle Passage, somewhere around 25% of them died on the way. And nobody had ever heard of it until Wilberforce and that big voice just started obsessing about it, talking about it, describing the unbearable heat of the Caribbean below deck. People stacked naked nearly on top of each other, months sometimes without standing, human waste everywhere, the suffocating smell, the sickness, the disease, the brutality of the crew, raping, killing for sport. There's a man, one of his friends, Thomas Clarkson, who did tireless research about this and produced these really famous drawings, you've probably seen them, of the slave ship, the Brooks, proudly owned by this prominent Brooks family from Liverpool. And the drawings showed what it was really like aboard a slave ship. The decks covered in human waste and mucus and blood. How if people got sick, um, the rocking of the boat would rub the skin down to the bone. It was said you could smell a slave ship a mile away. Schools of sharks followed them, feeding on the discarded bodies. This is how he talked, and, and people were shocked. They had no idea. And it slowly began to bring all this social pressure to bear on Parliament and some, some shame on families like the Brooks family. And Wilberforce just was on a mission. He told everybody about the, the Middle Passage. And um, it actually produced one of his most famous quotations. He, he'd say, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. Of course, the capitalist industrialists had their own slogan. They said, a vote to end the slave trade is a vote to sink the British economy. That's what, they, that's what they always say. That's always the excuse to just go with the status quo of injustice. So year after year, he induces, introduces bill year after year to get voted down. 20 years, 20 years they worked on this. And often they thought they were there and something would go wrong at the last minute. There's this one time, it was, they write about it, it kind, of, kind of funny, but um, it was going to pass. They thought they had a one-vote cushion. And they, these three jack wagons went to the opera and missed the vote. So they lost. They had it. And they missed it, so they go hear a lady sing. Other years they were filibustered off, and their people just got bought off, got bribed. All the while, they were savaging the abolitionists, Pitt and Wilberforce. They lost a lot of business, were shunned by their peers, threatened with violence, often attacked and beaten. In fact, Wilberforce refused to marry for years because he was just so sure he'd end up dead from this fight. And then finally, after 20 years of it, or maybe a little more, in 1807, the first measure passed, making slave trade illegal. Um, they could still own slaves, but trade was outlawed, and they were convinced that they could just stop that at first. They could get more votes, but that would make the treatment of slaves more humane, which it actually did, while they could work to abolish it, which he continued to do and um, led the cause of abolition in the government until he retired from Parliament in 1825 without winning the abolition 
But he continued to speak, make speeches to lobby. And as he lay dying in 1833, he was told of concessions made by the parliament that would ensure the outright abolition of slavery in the British Empire. And he died three days later. Like truly was his mission. One month after the Slavery Abolition Act was passed, he saw it happen. And of course, there are, I mean, there are so many lessons we could learn from a guy like William Wilberforce. But a couple stick out to me. One is that um, Wilberforce and his friends rediscovered this idea that you don't have to be in ministry to be in ministry. You know what I mean? I mean, back then, anybody got serious about God, anybody who caught the enthusiasm had to join the clergy where they would be ignored. Um, but these guys proved you didn't have to leave Parliament to serve God. And we see that as, you know, that makes sense to us. But back then, this was a pretty radical move. And it always reminds me of Paul's um, great writing from uh, Romans 12, where he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. When people say um, to me, which you know happens every once in a while, I wish I could just quit my job and do ministry, I always say, you're doing ministry. Your job really is ministry. You're being the hands and feet of Christ wherever you go, where you live, where you work. And it matters. It matters. Um, to be a good boss, it matters. How many of you have suffered under a bad boss? You know it matters. Being a good employee with integrity, it really matters. Being a good friend, a coworker, a mentor, a small business owner, these things matter to the world. And it's not so much um, what you do, it's how. You know what I mean? It's how you go about your work that, that makes it ministry. And Wilberforce convinced a lot of people that, that their lives mattered over the years, how they conduct their business matters. And I think we should all remember this. We can take this from his life. We can present our bodies as living sacrifices, and then our whole life becomes an act of worship. That's the first thing. The second one is, you know, when, when you hear a story like this, we're tempted to um, put ourselves on the side of the hero. I like to side with Wilberforce. But, I mean, the truth is, most of us would have been on the other side. I mean, just playing the odds, if we lived back then, over half of us at least would have come down against Wilberforce and the abolitionists, branding him a radical, saying he was betraying our conservative principles, going to wreck the economy, going to wreck the culture. And so the, the second thing I take from this is, is not to make the mistake, I think, of approaching this story that way. Um, the mistake is kind of to say, we need to be more like Wilberforce, maybe, or we would have been on that side, or just decide with it, but rather to listen to his message, to let him challenge us, to expose the way we've grown cold about certain things, injustices, how we're complicit in economic injustice and social injustice, and just, you know, general brokenness. 
how we become blind, um, blind to the plight of those who struggle while we live comfortable, affluent lives. And a lot of our friends and neighbors, they really are suffering. And it's really easy just to, you know, do very little, feel bad about it, but not do much. It's a whole different thing to, you know, risk our reputations, to leverage our standing for strugglers. If you take an issue like homelessness that we talk a lot about at Redemption, we know that on any given night in Johnson County, somewhere around 230 to maybe 280, maybe even 300, depending on the time of year, people are homeless on any one night. And um, lots of people despise the homeless. They blame them for their situation. They see only addictions, mental illness, PTSD, lawbreakers. And none of those things, by the way, cause homelessness. By the way, this is like newer research I've been reading lately. You know the single biggest factor that drives homelessness? Um, that like the, if, if you're going to look at one thing in all the data that can predict homelessness will be a problem, it's rent prices, high rent prices. That causes homelessness. You know, uh, for years, John, Johnson County, in fact, has been pushing this, um, running kind of a, a, a grift. What they do is they, they um, officials in our cities and our, our county governments, even state government and federal, they run on a platform of promising to cut taxes, and they get people all worked up about their taxes and say, we'll do something about it. But what they actually do is govern in such a way that they um, keep supply of housing low and housing values then go up because there's a lot of demand. And so what they can do then is as your housing values go up, they can cut taxes, your percent of taxes, but gain, still gather the same revenue. It's kind of a grift, a sleight of hand. And everybody's happy thinking, yeah, our property values are going up and our taxes just went down. It's the same amount of money coming in. The problem is, as those housing values rise, it cuts out people who are living on the margins. They can't keep up. And when you have wealth and capital, this is okay. But if you're vulnerable, you have health problems or addictions, if you just don't make good money, if you have some kind of you know, struggle, housing ends up being like a game of musical chairs. That's what it's like. It's scarce, and those who live on the margins, when the music stops, they can easily be left without a place to live. And homelessness, it's a housing problem, like full stop. And that's a political issue. Redemption is a a part of a group of 30-some congregations now in Johnson County who have banded together to work on homelessness and some other social issues. And Wilberforce, in his life, I think challenges each of us to ask ourselves how much we're personally risking to try and change the way our community approaches homelessness. Not just acts of mercy where we help people out, which is super important, please always do it, but more leveraging our standing in the community to change the system in particular, the housing system, so that homelessness is rare and brief. One of the things that we're asking everyone at Redemption Church, everybody who calls Redemption Church their home, we're asking everyone to join the Good Faith Network, become a member. 
um, because every person who joins lends their standing in the community to this effort we're working on. Housing, homelessness, and mental health. Those are our three issues. And they are all kind of mixed in there together. But to join the network is very simple. You just say, I would like to join the network, and then you're in. There's no like, you don't have to pay dues or anything. But you do promise to do a few things. They, they, um, they're good at kind of giving you a little pithy things to remember. They call it four, three, two, one. So it's four, you promise to, to attend four yearly events. They're, they're spread out all over the year where we try to gather the network together. One, one of those events is coming up next Sunday afternoon, by the way. Um, so four, then three, they ask you to try to bring three people with you to the biggest event, the Nehemiah Assembly, when we talk to our officials. That's clear, in, it'll be May of next year. And then two, they ask everybody to consider donating $200 to keep the network going. And then one, make one united voice for justice in Johnson County. See, they're good at writing these things. Four, three, two, one, that's it. That's what it means to join the network. And um, Redemption has been, you guys, we've been so active here. Let me give you an example, Tom Pomerico, um, has been a team leader and really active in, in the group. He reminded me today that last year at our Nehemiah Assembly, our big assembly, we had almost 1,300 people there. Redemption Church is one of the smaller congregations in the network. We had 130 people there. We had one-tenth of the people. And my dream is that just it'll be normal for everybody in Redemption to, to be part, to lend their name to this organization and show up for social justice four times a year, try to bring people and support it. Because we're trying to lend our voice, our, our power, our standing in the community um, to try and change a system that's producing a lot of pain and brokenness and just people who don't have a place to live. We're not abolishing slavery. But this is important work. And um, if it sounds like something you're willing to do, you can join today. Um, Beth is going to have a, a clipboard in the back. All you got to do is write your name and your email, and you'll get then reminders of when you can show up. Um, we've been working on this for three years now. 30 congregations, over 600 members so far, 1,250, I think, at our last Nehemiah Assembly. Our goal is 1,500 people next spring, which I'm hoping we can make it. And um, if you want to be part of it, it's not a small thing to join this. It, it really can make a difference. One of the verses that Wilberforce often quoted is John 3, starting in verse 19. He said this, or John wrote this. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. You feel that? When people are working deeds that they're like, I know, this is probably not right. The last thing they want is for light to shine upon those things. This is part of what we do. And they will, by the way, call you an enthusiast. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true, I think that's interesting, do what is true. What is true is not just a thing you think, it's a thing you do, a way of being. Those who do what is true come to the light 
so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And I wonder how often we refuse to step into the light because either we don't want our deeds to be exposed or probably more likely we just don't want to be enthusiasts to rock the boat. And Wilberforce, he's cool. He, he challenges this. Um, but it's, it's hard because, I mean, it's William Wilberforce. Like I said his name and some people went woo, you know? <laughs> like he's a huge deal. He's, he ended, helped end slavery in, in the UK. Like we're just a bunch of, you know, folks from Kansas. And um, so it can, it can be easy just to see him as an extremist, which he was. He was very extreme. And I think God used that extremism to, to change things. But, um, man, all of us can refuse to love the darkness, you know what I mean? And come into the light and bring into the light the issues of justice around us. We can all do this. And you don't have to be an extremist. I'm kind of an extremist. I'll be your pastor. I can be an extremist for you. And you guys are going to laugh about me behind my back, and I am fine with this. But all of us can lend our, um, lend our social credibility to issues of justice. Just leverage whatever you can to make a difference for those on the margins. This is just part of what it means to be a human being in the world who is following Christ. We leverage it. We live our lives as an act of worship to God. And things won't get any better for the people who are struggling in our community unless we do this. There's this great line um, I, I like to repeat that the flourishing of the vulnerable depends on the vulnerability of the flourishing. Think about that. The flourishing of the vulnerable will only happen when those who are flourishing decide to become vulnerable, live in solidarity, lend their whole life as an act of worship to let others enjoy the blessings of God. Those who have a good job, insurance, education, community, family, support, emotional strength, savings, good credit, good health, all kinds of things that we have and take for granted. Some people have none of that. And they live in our county. And they need those who are flourishing to stand in solidarity with them. And the way we do this is through Good Faith Network, so I hope that you'll join. When he introduced his bill the first time in 1789, William Wilberforce said, um, I mean not to accuse anyone. Which, did he? I mean, did he mean not to? <laughs> Maybe a little meant to accuse. But he said, but to take the shame on myself, which is, you know, that's how we do it. Like, I'm not accusing you, it's we. In common, indeed, with the whole Parliament of Britain, he said, for having suffered this horrid trade to be carried on under their authority, we are all guilty, he said. We ought to all plead guilty and not to um, exculpate ourselves by throwing the blame on others. We can't throw the blame on others. It's, it's our county. It's, it's our community. Um, and the move into the light is not always an easy move, but it's a gutsy move. And... It's a move that ragamuffins make. And so I hope that you'll consider making this move with me.
And I hope we'll all muster the courage to let William Wilberforce in his life speak to us again this day. To call our lives into question, yes. But to spur us on to take responsibility for those who suffer in our community. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for the life of William Wilberforce. His bravery, his enthusiasm, his big booming voice, and his commitment to justice. Pray that all of us could see our work in the way we live our lives as ministry. And pray, God, that we would all step into the light, leverage our lives for those who struggle on the margins of our community. It's such good work to do. I pray that we would embrace it with energy and purpose. Amen. If you would stand, please. We're going to receive communion. The way we do communion at Redemption is um, you'll be ushered forward row by row and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup and you just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. And they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ and you can say, I will remember or however you feel comfortable responding. And we do this, of course, because on the night he was betrayed, Jesus did this with his followers. They shared the same cup, the same loaf of bread. And he said, here's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going away. But every time you gather, eat this bread in this cup. It, it'll be symbolic of my body, my blood. Take my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go out into the world and be my hands and feet. He said, whenever you gather, do this. And remember who you are. Remember what you're made of. And so this is why we receive communion um, when we gather. And it's also why we don't set limits on who can join us. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. So I invite you all to join. Um, but first to pray with me and let's bless this offering. Oh God, we do ask you to bless the bread and the cup here. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out to the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come? <clears throat>